Welcome to the IEEE Future Networks podcast series, Podcasts with the Experts, an IEEE Future Directions digital studio production. In this episode, James Irvin talks with Karina Moxie-Muke and Greg Paul about their work with 5G Rural First, a UK government testbed and trial project, which describes itself as a call to action to be sure the benefits of 5G go beyond the city. Karina is responsible for various agritech use cases. Greg is responsible for the design of the 5G network used in Orkney, an archipelago in the Northern Isles of Scotland. Hello, I'm James Irvin. I'm one of the community development co-chairs for the IEEE Future Networks project. I'll start with you, Karina. Why is 5G important for rural communities? 5G is important for rural communities because at the moment there is a digital divide that currently exists between urban and rural spaces. 46% of the UK's land is actually designed and used for agricultural activities. And network operators generally tend to look at population density to decide whether they are planning to install a cell tower or any type of connectivity. And this comes at a disadvantage for agriculture because they tend to focus on the productivity of the land. I think that's a good point you make there specifically about how mobile network operators make decisions about deployment. Uh, some of the large operators that you'll see in countries like the UK are actually looking for business cases in excess of £4 million to justify the deployment of a single macro site. So if you if you think about 46% of the country's landmass and the challenge in getting coverage in a rural area, actually you can see that there's, there's, a, there's a serious problem in getting a justification to install even one mast, but think about the number you'd actually need to cover all of these farms and actually cover the entire area of each of these farms rather than just a corner. So dairy is a very big sector in the UK. What specifically do you think 5G can offer the dairy sector? Absolutely. I mean, in the UK alone, we have over 14,500 dairy centres and one of our test beds is within Somerset called the Southwest Dairy Development Centre. It is seen as the flagship dairy with the latest technology that has been deployed over the course of the 5G phase one and phase two. The main solution that we see as being really beneficial to farmers are connected cows, because cows are all about the productivity and the ability to produce uh, within a specified amount of time. So a connected collar actually provides the visibility of the cow's behavior and health over a 24-hour period, eliminating the need for the farmer to go in early 5 o'clock or 4 o'clock in the morning to see what the cows are doing, and instead gets a dashboard overview of the actions that they need to take, whether a cow is displaying you know, signs of distress or is actually showing signs of being fertile enough to be inseminated. So is there really enough money in agricultural to support the development of 5G in that sector? Absolutely. I think we need to look at what the value you get from these connected collars. By being able to monitor a cow over a 24-hour period, you're able to manage them in a much better way, and that enables increased productivity. So when we look at the Afimilk cow collar, the return on investment is actually a year, which is great value for the farmer because they can actually justify the expense. And by making it 5G enabled, you're also looking at different business models that are becoming available. 
Afimuk, for instance, currently uses a capex model where a farmer needs to put out the money up front before they can receive the equipment to install. With 5G, they can look at subscription models where they maybe lease the equipment and over a number of years, maybe get an update with subscription models, you are able to make the investment much more flexible and you don't have to have the capex outlay up front. Yep, and to add on to that, I think as well, one of the biggest problems that you see with uh, talking about 5G deployment and whether it can justify the cost, one of the biggest costs is, of course, spectrum. And when you have a mobile network operator that has paid several billion pounds for spectrum, they've already got, in essence, on the books, a significant debt that they're having to write off that debt as a result of deploying their cell sites to then serve customers. And previously, in previous generations of mobile, it started with 2G and it's continued all the way through to 4G. And even some mobile networks have yet to adapt to really understand business models for 5G. 5G business models are going to have to be completely different because for a rural area where there are these strong commercial drives that Karina's mentioned, that this is not necessarily going to be reflected in ARPU or number of customers because if you're measuring wrongly, it sounds obvious, but it's actually worth stating, if you count by number of customers and you count the farmer as one customer, then on a dashboard that area shows as horrendous when actually you've got 1,800 users all through one account. And it's important that we keep in mind how mobile networks are viewing this and that you know they are going to see a difference in how people in rural areas are using networks and how it's measured as being used. And potentially if the mobile network operator can't do it, spectrum sharing means that they'll be able to deploy their own network on site and that's the direction of travel that Ofcom was very firmly pushing yesterday at 5G World. So Ofcom is the regulator that's responsible for Spectrum in the UK. Yep. So do you envisage a day when farmers have to be their own IT and communication <coughs> providers? I don't, I don't see a day where they will have to be, but I do see a day where they will have the option to be or the option to select the one that they want to do it. So in the same way that today you can pick a SIM card from one of the four major networks, or you could go to a virtual network operator that runs on the infrastructure of one of those four. I think we are now, you know, there is a point in, in, you know, in, in a clear line of sight from today that shows how a farmer, a, you know, a community even as well, and I think it's worth mentioning communities here too, communities, farmers, even groups of farmers can get together and they can get infrastructure installed, use shared access to Spectrum, because one of the common things in rural areas is actually Spectrum is not very efficiently utilised. There's lots of Spectrum that's available, unused, and they would be able to use some of that on a shared basis, get access to it, and run a network. Reality is they might not choose to run it themselves, but they'd be able to go to someone commercially and say, could you run a network for me? Yep, absolutely. Here's 10,000 sims, just start popping them in your cows. Absolutely. I think that point on spectrum is really important, but we also need to keep in mind that the business cases need to be justified. And a mobile operator is so far removed from the world of a farmer that they will not necessarily understand what precision grazing even entails. So you're going to have to probably look at cooperatives, large groups of farmers to sell solutions into, but you're probably going to need a company or an organization within this ecosystem that will be able to integrate these solutions for them and be able to translate the need of the farmer uh, and reflect what the solutions could be in terms of cells or base stations that can be installed for them. Absolutely, I think that's a good point as well, especially if you look at what some of the analysts have been talking about with 5G. There's been a great push 
um, amongst analysts and market observers that 5G is going to go beyond just providing connectivity because the commercial model for 4G has quite simply been pay by the megabyte or pay by the gigabyte or we're going to just assume a certain number of gigabytes and actually just call it unlimited. And we have now started to see the move away from billing for calls and text messages on the circuit switch systems. In fact, some of the virtual networks no longer have billing systems that support those. They just make them free for all because it's much easier just to meter on the data side. Moving on to 5G, metering with data doesn't necessarily give the business model that's going to be required. It's now about a service. It's now about a full end-to-end provision. And it's, you know, there's there's maybe not actually the same need for a mobile network to come along with 5G in a farm, for example, and sit there and say, okay, it's going to be this much per SIM card, this much per phone number, and this much per megabyte. Because that's not what people are wanting. People now want an integrated solution. They're going to want their service bundled in with that caller, in with that um, automated piece of equipment that sits down on the farm and gets installed and is never touched again. And this is a good point because when we first got into the Southwest Dairy Center, they were using wireless routers with maybe 20 gigabytes of data that was available on them. The dairy itself now enjoys a one gigabit by dedicated fiber network and it suddenly consumes two and a half terabytes of data every month just with the use of a 3D camera that is consuming so much data. So you'll find a farmer with a variety of solutions. They'll use something like drones for maybe weekly surveys of their land. They'll have connected cows that maybe only consume 12, 15 kilobytes of data. But then you have really data intensive equipment as well, such as the 3D camera, they'll have much higher requirements. So the question is, how do you split that up and um, allow a farmer to create a, a subscription model or a data plan? So. You raise a very interesting point there when you're talking about one gigabit to a farm. Greg, you've been responsible for the design of the network, the 5G deployment in Orkney for 5G Rural First. What were the challenges for providing a 5G network to a community offshore with only 22,000 people? So there were several challenges. I think the big one that's often understated and often underappreciated and underrecognised is actually the realities and challenges around operating logistically in a rural environment. You are talking about somewhere where you have to get there by a small plane with 30 seats or on a ferry that stops when the sea gets too choppy and that gets you to the mainland. There's then, I think there's another 70 smaller islands, about just just over half of those I think are also inhabited, that actually you're not dealing with this homogenous environment where you can just go and rent a truck when you need it and get a hold of a cherry picker as and, as and when it's required. The, the, the logistics piece around this is considerably bigger. And while the infrastructure is in place, you know, that there is a fibre connection that comes to the island, there is a fibre exchange. It's considerably smaller than what you might expect when you hear about a fibre exchange, but nonetheless gives you high-speed connectivity. But that's only a single point of presence on the whole set of islands. So from there, you have to then use dedicated microwave backhaul. So we're working with a local wireless internet service provider there, which is CloudNet Solutions, and they already have a commercial network for customers. So they're able to give their customers access to normal internet over you know, wireless links, and that's all microwave. And what we're do- now doing is working with them to provide backhaul to get high-speed connectivity into areas that previously have nothing. There is no fibre infrastructure that's going to give you high speeds there in the way that you know we're looking at with, uh, with the farm, where you're able to actually go and pay and have a gigabit cable installed. If you wanted to do that, you'd be talking about laying subsea cables. 
Yeah. There were still challenges with the Southwest Dairy Center where we are relying on the point of presence, which is either provided by BT or Virgin. And as a result of that, we spent months trying to get this team to be available um, after they identified that certain spans of fiber were broken. So even though if you have a dedicated ISP such as maybe CloudNet, um, you're still counting on that main infrastructure to be handed off before you can really move along and be in control of your network. And is that just because there were so few subscribers there that the fiber wasn't fixed quickly? I think it was down to the fact that the pop was about three kilometers away from the dairy center, which meant that the fiber itself was laid both underground as well as overground. And there were trees that were clearly causing some issues and it resulted in BT having to chop some of them down in order to be able to fix the cable. So it's possible that there were just not enough users for them to have, have it prioritized on their list of activities. So should rural users pay more for their 5G if it's more difficult to provide? I think there's an interesting model in places like Sweden where communities actually pool money together to deploy fibre or connectivity. I'm not sure how that model works in places like the UK, particularly in places like Orkney. So within the UK, traditionally in the telecom sector, we've looked at the kind of universal service provision way of thinking. So... If you actually have to go all the way back through to the postal system actually for this. So you, the universal service obligation is the part that covers how uh, a letter can be sent from one part of the country to the other and it's guaranteed that it will be delivered and it will be received and it will go through a certain process and it will be also charged at exactly the same price. And that's part of that obligation there. Now, in, in the telecom system, it's you know it's similar in that I believe there's an obligation to be provided with a phone line, and we are slowly making moves towards obligations to provide you know broadband and then the definition of broadband that is brought slightly more up to date with what's expected. But on the whole, it is expected that this coverage be provided and is therefore in essence implicitly subsidised by subscribers in areas where it is easier to reach. Now I think with uh, 5G and what we're looking at here with this project, something that's uh, come that's come to light, I think, um, and just in seeing what's happening here is the question being asked around, you know, should, should, should people be made to pay more? Well, maybe the question that would be better to consider is, is there a reason that people need to pay more? Because if we look at the economics around a, commer a, you know, a commercial conventional mobile network deployment, a lot of the equipment that's being installed on site is incredibly expensive um, and potentially incredibly overrated for what's actually needed on site on the ground and if you go speak to the community about what they require um, I've been done it and people are not asking for gigabit a second people are asking for the ability to browse the internet and not have pages stall and stutter and fail to load when they're trying to make their DEFRA submissions and that actually it might not be necessary to charge anymore and if the you know if the big operators did want to charge more, perhaps this is an opportunity for the community to work in partnership with commercial providers, with technology providers, with their ISPs, and actually put in the infrastructure themselves on a shared spectrum basis. I, I don't think it's necessarily a given that they're going to have to pay more. I think the costs will balance out if they don't use the you know the absolute latest, most expensive rollout of tier one equipment, and if they're able to use something that is better value, lower cost. And you know what? It might not provide them with seven nines of uptime. They're not asking for that. They're asking for the ability to watch a video on YouTube. So you mentioned shared spectrum there. 
and you've mentioned that a couple of times. Do you see shared spectrum as being a way of reducing costs for rural 5G? Absolutely. I think if you look at the economics of running a mobile network, spectrum is one of your big costs. It's not necessarily your biggest by any means because the civils that are involved in putting out a network are significant and the costs around masts, site acquisition, site access and way leaves all are significant as well. But I think the biggest challenge when you are running a mobile network in a top-down way where you're setting policies at board level and then trying to cascade those through an organisation down to eventually contracting out for sites to be installed is that local knowledge is key. So if you actually go to a local area and work with local people on the ground who are going to benefit from it, these barriers go away very, very quickly. And that's something we saw in 5G Rural First. If you go and actually work with the local people, um, they'll offer you their kitchen table for the planning. They'll uh, offer you their um, wind turbine in the garden and they'll start taking you around and saying, do you reckon you could put a mast on my wind turbine? Um, what, what about the, you know, what about, uh, what about that pole over there? We could install a pole over here. Um, would I get better coverage in the kitchen if I, uh, if I cut something back and made it easier? So people are very willing to accommodate, and this was, you know, this was not something that they were then looking to try and charge huge amounts of money to get access to. Th their question is, will my children get better internet connection? Will they be able to do their homework from home and actually get it done rather than just sitting there looking at loading screens? Will I be able to make my DEFRA payments on time and get my submissions put through for uh, the money back from DEFRA? People are very, very willing to cooperate. And I think with Spectrum sharing, this you know, will give access to, certainly within the UK, we're looking at 3.8 to 4.2 gigahertz being dedicated shared, along with a couple of smaller segments in uh, slightly lower bands. But there's also been proposals that seem to be coming to fruition at the moment that are about access to any mobile network spectrum that's not currently utilised. And if you get access to the spectrum, the equipment is there. The ability to deploy a network end-to-end -end is something that we've demonstrated on the 5G Rural First project. And the budget that was available for doing so with multiple sites was less than the business case that would be required by a commercial MNO to install a single site. So I think clearly there is a case that it can be done and it can work and it is commercially feasible and viable to do. So a lot of the hype around 5G has been on millimetre wave and 5G Rural First I know uses millimetre wave for some of its uh, use cases, but only in a limited fashion. You mentioned uh, 3.5 gigahertz, 3.2 gigahertz, and we also have deployments at 700 megahertz. How do you see these different uh, frequencies comparing for rural 5G? So I think when, when you when you deal with rural 5G, it's important that we you know separate it into the coverage goal. When you are purely aiming at getting a large amount of coverage, you know, across a huge landmass area, um, fields, for example, this is where you really want to use 700 megahertz because 700 megahertz propagates and it goes on and on and on. So at the dairy centre that Karina was mentioning earlier, for example, the dairy is actually below a hill and there's a fairly steep hill behind the dairy and then some fields beyond that it actually goes down into a dip and then comes back up to the level and you can you can do all manner of uh, surveys and studies and things actually just going out there and putting a mast up and having a look and you realize it's 700 megahertz it just goes straight across over the top diffracts around and gives you coverage down in the field if you were to try that with a higher frequency, as you go up on the frequency, your ability to do that diminishes because the more uh, blocks that you see in place, anything that you know finds its way in the path of propagation starts to cause an issue. 
because anything that comes in the path actually the option to diffract around starts to fall away rapidly as you start to move up in frequency and you mentioned millimeter wave which is uh, not actually in use within the 5g rural first projects that we're working on at the moment there don't seem to be any use cases that are using millimeter wave now in this project but if you use millimeter wave you get a real problem with actually getting propagation through even simple environments there's lots of studies been done in Bournemouth on the urban environment propagation for millimetre wave. And one of the biggest problems they found uh, were bus stops, trees, lampposts, people, cars, lorries, you know, things that you typically see around cities. And if you go out into a rural environment, anything, be it a tall tree, uh, be it a pylon, any fixed object that you know presents any form of substance, even a building, even a kind of soft-sided building, will start to really affect your propagation because millimeter wave is really, you know, it's you know if if you think about the spectrum, as you move towards visible light, you, properties start to become more like visible light, and we start we understand how visible light works. It doesn't go through things. You're not quite at that level there, but millimeter wave doesn't propagate in the same way, and that's why in the UK we're seeing millimetre wave indoors is going to be open and usable on a shared basis because effectively it's not going to leave your house anyway so it's nice and simple to coordinate. Karina, you recently spoke at a 5G summit in South Africa. What similarities do you see between the challenges found there and the challenges in the UK? I think the main challenges that South Africa will face is the lack of availability for connectivity in rural spaces. So you have cities that enjoy 4G connectivity, but the further you go out, the less this becomes available. Now, the majority of the UK solutions currently produced have a certain data demand for them to work properly. And there's also a cost element associated with it as well. So when we look at IoT devices, and I'll go back to the cow collar example because it's quite easy for people to understand, we'll have solutions where providers will require between 500 megabytes and one gigabyte of data. And that's currently not feasible when you're in a rural space that barely has 3G coverage. And the similarities exist between South Africa and places like Paraguay, where the farms are bigger and the, the ranches are far more remote to cities than they are in the UK. And more so, the cost element as well. A farmer may be able to afford a $60 collar in the UK, but they may not be able to afford the same when they're in a more emerging market. And the same applies for subscription plans as well. So if you have a collar that uses an M2M SIM card, a good example of this would be something like a MUCL that detects births of cows. The pricing model really doesn't reflect the needs and the budgets of farmers in more emerging markets. And those are the biggest issues that we will face um, in the forthcoming years. And how do you see projects like 5G Rural First addressing problems like that? I think what we see with 5G is a IoT ecosystem um, designed in a sort of miniature research testbed level. So you're seeing all the partners that are required to deploy an end-to-end -end solution collaborating and working together to achieve a common end result, which is to have a solution working. So we'll be able to identify that certain pricing strategies or approaches may not work when you try to scale beyond that. And we're able to address this and see this um, on a much smaller level. And this is informing uh, a lot of design and, and maybe uh, approaches going forward. So it goes beyond just the technology to involve the entirety of the community? 
Absolutely. You're going much further into the business models themselves. If you think about requiring callers, base stations, someone providing backhaul, as well as the analytics over that, the question really becomes who owns the customer at the end of the day once this solution has been put in place? And who does own the customer? That's a good question. And your view? Uh, my view would be that it would be the if there's a system integrator, I believe that the relationship would primarily sit with the system integrator because they will be utilizing perhaps wholesale um, connectivity and integrating this into a dedicated solution for that particular farmer. Um, perhaps there'll be a sharing model as well. We look at the entire ecosystem, you'll be looking for connectivity to amount to perhaps 30 to 40% of the total deal value. So the hardware itself is actually a small component um, of the total value itself. But these elements are not you know, segregated. There is a big overlay and one player could be doing both things, uh, but connectivity is, cent is central to all of this. So what innovation do we still require in order to make this vision of 5G in rural mm. areas a reality? What we need to see is for agriculture to take a similar line that smart cities have taken. You may be familiar with the OASC group, which is the Open and Agile Smart Cities, and they're proponents of open access, interoperability, but also not reinventing the wheel. And what we see in agriculture is that this mindset is a few years behind this, um, a lot of solutions are proprietary and there's no such things like API keys to even share the data between various platforms. So I think that the thinking of farmers and the thinking of solution providers will need to change and adapt a little bit if they want to compete on the global scale. I think the other thing as well that's worth keeping in mind when we look at what's happening in the different sectors is that the agri sector is a vertical just like other verticals. And when the system integration piece starts to mature, I think we'll no longer see dedicated solutions being the only option within Agri. So you know, while connectivity today, you'll be looking at a specialist Agri provider, I think going forward, you're going to start to see more access to get the price advantages of commodity solutions and then system integrate them to work. Because at the moment, if you look around, it's, there's a lot of uh, you know isolation of each vertical and that's great for the margins of the the vendors that are involved but I think going forward with 5G what we're going to see is the ability to step back from that and say actually the technical problem here is simple well understood we don't need another one what we need to do is get back to our roots as you just mentioned uh, you know open standards open data open forms of interchange but building the, the fundamentals correctly rather than trying to wrap a product layer around something that might be substandard and actually being able to move forward with an open standard and open data is going to give better value and actually a better end-to-end -end experience for the customer. And that's what will come in because once the choice appears, that end-to-end -end experience will be the differentiator. And if I can install something in a day rather than in five weeks, then I'm more competitive and I'll be doing that using this kind of interoperability, this you know open source, open standards way of working and that will give a better solution to the farmer and a better solution for the end user. And if, if you have that, you have a happy customer and that will grow. I think it's easy to say that you know plug and play solutions, especially those that can be deployed at ease, will be those that gain a competitive advantage in the years to come. And the players that decide to be proprietary will probably fall back uh, because they will not be able to scale and achieve the, uh, the, the volume of deployments that they want, quite simply because the needs 
will have changed by the time that they've caught up with the market. It's interesting that you should say that because one of the aspects of the IEEE Future Networks Initiative is to bring standards together with application groups to try and cross the boundaries between these different areas. What role do you see for professional societies in stimulating the development of 5G? So I think there's a really important role here. Um, you mentioned about the standards part. <coughs> and one of the big challenges that we face with standards often in telecoms is that telecoms and technology have often been slightly split and on divergent paths. And a lot of the technology in IT world has moved forward at a much faster pace than you know the traditionally more reserved, more regulated, more scrutinized telecoms industry. But with what we're seeing just now, which th there is this convergence coming back for 5G. And in this convergence, we, we are seeing the opportunity for standards to really take a hold here. What we need is smarter standards that are better written and better understood by the people that are implementing them and actually designing them at the same time. Because a lot of standards you read, are, you know, they end up with, you know, it's a common criticism, but are designed by committee. And the problem is something designed by committee is useful for no one. And you end up expending huge effort to fully implement it. And that has led to a lot of these proprietary solutions that we see because they've delivered something that was needed there at the time and that company's now said, well, we've gone and built something that's better than the standard. And for me, the opportunity for IEEE and other standards bodies and just professional bodies in general that want to be in this space is let's try and defeat that criticism. Let's try and be the best in that instance. And it might mean new ways of operating around standards. It might mean that you know we, we end up with two standards rather than one, but with a design for interoperability between them from the outset. But there's, there, there just seems to be this, this slight gap between some of the solutions that we have out there, particularly in some of the more detailed and grain, you know, granular parts of standards, where you look at it and afterwards and think, why on earth would anyone design it like that? And there's probably some good reason, but when you're actually implementing it, it adds weeks or months on to the timescales that are required. And it's a question of silos. You know, different standards are being created by different groups who are not necessarily working together. So one thing that we are seeing in smart cities, for example, are living lab environments where you've got companies, organizations, individuals cooperating, co-creating and collaborating in order to achieve outcomes. And I think for 5G, this could be a very good way forward as well, where um, different solutions could be designed in the lab and then validated with the support of commercial organizations in the field. Well, it's interesting that you say that because within the initiative, we have a testbed uh, portion and the idea is that we share access to different 5G testbeds between collaborators in the initiative. So this is a role that IEEE is trying to take. Well, thank you very much, Karina and Greg, for sharing your insights in 5G Rural First and the challenges of 5G in rural uh, applications. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of the IEEE Future Networks podcast. Discover more about the IEEE Future Networks initiative and inquire about participating in this effort by visiting our web portal at futurenetworks.ieee.org.